Hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version and can be found on page 996 in the Pew Bible. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and I discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice, and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today we are starting out this three-week series on the book of Revelation. Sally and I were talking about this morning, she couldn't decide if I was getting the long straw or the short straw on the deal by getting to kick it off, but uh, we're going to see where we end up today. You know, it's interesting because upon hearing that we're looking at this particular book, the book of Revelation, there are a variety of initial thoughts that you might have had. Some of you might be saying, oh, yay, we don't get to look at this book very often. I mean, the lectionary text doesn't cover it a whole lot. We haven't covered it in a while. Nikki was one of those, very excited about the fact we are going to look at this book. However, there are some of you who might have thought of it a little bit differently. Some of you might have been wondering, what are we going to be doing with this book? It wouldn't necessarily have gone off in a positive way. As a matter of fact, take a look at some of the faces of a few of my church friends when I said, guess what? I get to preach on the book of Revelation in a few Sundays. Take a look at this picture. This is Rita Matthews. Yeah, that was her face right as I said it. Uh huh. Then there's Glenn Simpson. Take a look at Glenn. Yep, Glenn's. That was good. Emily Felgenhauer's was lovely, too. She was like, oh, okay, what you going to do with this, Deb? And Michael's is my favorite. This. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look at all the love and support I was getting from my friends as I was getting ready to write this message, right? Yeah, well, um, one writer says this. 
Revelation is full of strange and lurid, sometimes bizarre and violent imagery. And you know, you might have thought in a world full of clever movies and DVDs filled with this kind of things, that we would have taken to it like ducks to water. But it actually doesn't work out that way. I mean, yes, there are some loosely based movies upon the book, but most movies that even way blow it out of proportion, well, they don't even talk about the message of God or hope. Oftentimes, I think I find that people either fear the book or they run away from the book more often than not. And, you know, I have to tell you, that was the case with me. I grew up with this text, thinking of it as some sort of fantasyful story, one in which I neither understood symbolism, because I'm, I'm not very good at it, and two, I questioned the modern-day approach that seemed to be invoked by some looking at it as a, a horror story. I mean, for me, it was like what I call a vampire story, using imagery to, like, frighten or spook people. And, it, and I was thinking, it just didn't seem right. It seemed like it was a way to manipulate people into faith. And so what I did is I just discarded it altogether. And what happened was I came to learn that there's much more in this book than I had really understood. And isn't that true about all of scriptures, really? I began to discover that as I engaged the text, as I looked at it in community with others, it expanded more for me. I began to see and understand more of what God was speaking in and through the writers and in that period of time. Now, I have to tell you, I'm still challenged by the imagery. I don't still get all of it. And the violence and the judgments that can sometimes be played out come forward, but I have to stop and not allow my judgments to interfere and hold me back from learning. And so I've continued on my journey to step into this book, learn and grow from it. And I think we all come to this book, this particular book of Revelation in particular, with different perspective and lenses, different upbringings, different ways in which we can see and encounter this text. So for today, I thought, let's just get started. Let's jump into this letter in particular, this part, and dip our toe in it, see if we might find a message of hope and grace for us. Now, the author of this book, John, whom might not have necessarily been the same writer as the gospel writers, there's a debate upon that. That writer, he didn't write the book as a, to be the last book of the Bible. Those who compiled the canon placed it there. And it's compiled in the, in the grouping at the, of the New Testament where there are multiple letters written by multiple authors to different churches at different periods of time. Those letters aren't listed chronologically, but instead grouped primarily by authors. Now, we often call it a book, don't we? We call it the book of Revelation. But the fact is, it was a letter. It was a letter, not written to a public at large, but it was a letter written to seven churches of Asia. One commentary said this, just as certainly as we would misunderstand Paul if we ignore the particularities of the situation in 1 Corinth, so will we misunderstand Revelation if we read it as though it were written directly to us. You see, the original hearers of this letter needed little explanation of what was in front of them. They were living in a world that was the aftermath of crisis and war and violence. They had had many natural disasters happening around them. 
And they were also a community of faith that had been persecuted for their faith. They were feared by others for the proclamation that they held, that they had this connection to the divine. And so oftentimes they had to write or talk about their faith in code words or imagery. And, you know, while the Christians themselves, they had many challenges, they also had been living, when you think about it, in the midst of this very vibrant life of faith. I mean, they had encountered the living God, open and available to all of humanity, and they were being transformed by it. They were living in the midst of hope and promise and restoration, even in the midst of experiencing the violence and the natural disasters. And so the language and the imagery that we, that we read is contextual. It's contextual to the world around them. And so while we might find the imagery bizarre, the community of faith then, they would have understood it in a very different way, much like Shakespeare's writing at the time of his life, which I have to tell you, I still have trouble understanding even now. N.T. Wright, the uh, retired Anglican bishop, said this about the book of Revelations. He has a wonderful book called Revelation for Our Time, and he summarizes it up this way. He says this letter, the letter of Revelation, in fact offers one of the clearest and sharpest visions of God's ultimate purpose for the whole of creation and of the way in which the most powerful forces of evil at work in a thousand ways, and at least idolatrous and tyrannous political systems, can be and are being overthrown through the victor of Jesus the Messiah and consequently costly victory of his followers. And so I summed it up in Debbie's speak to say this letter can remind us that despite the evil and the violence and the war, the natural disasters, and, and even our unfaithful systems, that love wins. Jesus is the victor, and we're invited into that victory of grace each and every day. So it's with that hopeful reminder that we'll step into this particular section of the text that we had read today. You see, in this section of the letter, Jesus is speaking out to the seven churches. The writer is writing down words that, that Jesus is, in his story, giving to him. And in each of these addresses, these addresses to each one of these seven churches, Jesus is acknowledging their strength of faith, while at the same time speaking some truth and love because something's missing. You see, there's this sense that they were meant for something more, kind of like a halftime speech that a coach gives to his team. You know, the chips are down, they're not performing as they were meant to perform, and so the coach comes in and he gives them that pep talk. He gives them the talk to remind them of who they were, what's possible, and what they can become. And so it's here that we find this church, this church in Laodicea, this message that's coming to them, this letter. Now, it was very interesting because as I looked at this particular town and studying this text this last couple of weeks, Laodicea is an interesting town because it's one of the seven churches. And as such, it stood in a particular position. It stood at the juncture of major trade routes. And so, therefore, it profited from the traffic that was going to and from the different areas of the region. It was a quite a wealthy town. It was the banking center for the whole region, they say. 
And they boasted of trained doctors that they had, doctors for uh, healing of the eyes and ears in particular. Matter of fact, the local farmers, they had a special breed of black sheep. And the wool was especially fine and rare, so it was very sought after in the region. So I realized, basically, this community had the best fashion, the best banks, wealth, and doctors in all of the land. Hmm, not such a foreign town. I also learned something else about this region. They had recently suffered major disasters. Specifically, an earthquake had come upon them not too long ago. And all of the other towns, they needed assistance from the Roman Empire, but apparently Laodicea was so wealthy that they didn't need help from anyone, and they boasted about it. One writer said they apparently were able to fend for themselves, not needing outside recovery, as the other cities in the region did as well. So when you listen to that text and you hear the writer say, for you say, I am rich and I've prospered and I need nothing, you don't realize that you're wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Ha, huh. they would have understood what that meant. They had become self-sufficient. Their pride was being celebrated, and they were forgetting about the power of God that was living within them. And so here was this community, a community of great wealth and of great power. But you know, there was one thing they didn't have. This I found very interesting. They didn't have good water. You see, the river in the town wasn't very strong at the time. Even in the summertime, it would start to dry up. And there were two other water sources that were available to them. One was on a, city, it was on a hilltop uh, nearby, and they had hot springs. Matter of fact, people would go and bathe for healing in the hot springs. Well, those hot spring waters would travel down to Laodicea, and what would happen when it traveled down? They were no longer hot any longer, but they were lukewarm. Matter of fact, the minerals that were in these hot springs, when it traveled down, those minerals in that water, it made it unsuitable to drink. Yeah. So what would happen if they put it in their mouth? They would have to spit it out. Well, get this. There was another water source on another hilltop. This one was over near Colossus, and they got their water from this snow-capped mountain. So there was this wonderful, crisp, cool, almost alpine-like water that would trickle down from there. But by the time it made its way all the way down to Laodicea, what do you think the water was like? You can answer it. Lukewarm. It's this remarkable feature about Laodicea, hot water that's cooled down, cool water that's heated up, that forms the most famous part, the most famous of these seven letters. The word Laodicean had almost become proverbial for lukewarmness, meaning apathetic, either not one thing or another. So when Jesus said to them, you are lukewarm, they knew what he meant. When he said, I want to spit you out, they understood it. Their faith was not what it was designed to be, for they were created in the image of God. They had discovered the living presence of Christ in their midst. They had been co-creating, participating in God's work at healing the world. But something had changed. They were allowing the outside circumstances of the world to affect the created purity of their soul. And they were becoming like those waters, not what they were initially intended to be. Pretty interesting about this little town called Laodicea. 
And so you might even be thinking right now, I know where she's going with this, right? How is my faith lukewarm? And we're going to get there. But there was a second element I discovered in this text that I thought um, was inspiring for me. And that was in the twofold promise that Jesus offers at the end of our scripture reading today, where Jesus is standing at the door, ready to walk in and eat together. Scripture says, he says, I will come into them and eat with them and they with me. You see, no early Christian could have heard those words without thinking about the regular meal, the breaking of the bread in which Jesus would come so powerfully and personally to give himself for his people. The church was being reminded, being reminded about the power of this relationship that they had been given to Christ. This two-way relationship that Christ was active and alive in their life each and every day, and they were being invited, invited to welcome Jesus to the dinner tables of their own lives. And I have to wonder if that might be the reminder for us today. Our world might look different, but still has violence, hatred, natural disasters, illness, and suffering. And we can all become consumed by the world around us, can't we? Overwhelmed by life, the negative voices that go on in our head, the wounds and the sorrows that are around us, and it can leave us feeling disconnected. But just like any relationship, our lack of attention to it can lead us, finding the waters of our faith becoming lukewarm. You know, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, found this to be true. He often found how easily it was for his faith, life, to become lukewarm, even apathetic at times. And so he gathered together in small group with others to discover ways in which they might strengthen and maintain this extraordinary gift of relationship that they'd been given in Christ. And what they discovered was how they might intentionally participate in what he called means of grace. For John Wesley, these means of grace were acts of piety and acts of mercy, and they shaped their lives and their relationship with Christ. We know them as spiritual practices, the ideas of engaging in prayer and meditation, scripture reading. He called those acts of piety. And then there were those serving the poor, visiting those who were sick, going to those in prison, and he called those acts of mercy. And as I said, we often call these acts spiritual practice, but I like what Wesley used, the phrase means of grace. Because it, it gives us this idea that these practices are more than something to exercise our faith muscle, but that they're actually ways in which God has promised to be with us, grace with us in them, the means of grace. And so our text today, it invites us, I think, to become aware, yes, what's the temperature of our faith. And it also invites us to consider how are we intentionally engaging in our relationship with Jesus. And then it's inviting us to trust, to trust in God's presence, God's presence with us at the dinner tables of our own life. So now comes the application part. What about you? How's the temperature of your water? Is it feeling hot? 
like the hot springs, the feeling crisp and cool like those cool airs, or is it getting a bit lukewarm? John Paul Young says this, we forget that Jesus is in us, and we're invited to participate in his promptings, in his ideas, and in viewpoints every day. Maybe your life's become consumed, consumed with to-do lists, being overwhelmed and distracted. Maybe you're feeling pressured, pressured by life, caught up in the belief that somehow you're not good enough, smart enough, successful enough. So easy to lose sight of the fact that in God's eyes, we are all of us enough. Or maybe you're living in the midst of a personal challenge, loss, sorrow, pain, or discomfort, and you're in need of God's grace. Or maybe, maybe there's somebody in your life, somebody in your life whose faith has become lukewarm. The circumstances of their life have them weighed down or distracted, and they are needing a word of encouragement, a word of reminder of the hope and love of Christ that's in our midst. You know, wherever we are in the November of this season of our life, This text, I think, invites us all to to open ourselves up, open ourselves up to the love and the strength and the comfort that God offers us. Jesus is ready to warm up our own faith lives. And I wish I could tell you that there was some magic pill that you could take to keep your waters from going lukewarm, but I haven't found it. And I don't think there is a one prayer that you can pray or one act that you can do that keeps your faith from getting lukewarm. The sages of centuries past from generation to generation remind us it's a day-by-day intentional choice to engage into this relationship of the living God who's always there, present and ready to meet us. So I wonder, what if... What if each morning we woke up and we met the day asking ourselves, where might I join with someone, the someone who is greater than ourselves? I think that's what these means of grace are meant to help us do. Help us not take for granted the privileges of the life that we have. They're meant to humble us, to join in and with someone that is greater than ourselves. And so maybe for you, it is an Advent study. Or maybe it's scheduling more room in your life for prayer, meditation, or scripture reading. Or maybe, maybe it's in stepping into serving someone else with God's love over these next few months, participating in acts of mercy like Serve Day. You see, Jesus came to build relationship. He came to build relationships with each one of us, each one of us individually and as a community. Jesus came to sit at the dinner tables of all of our lives. And so as the book of Revelation helps us to see that despite evil and injustice and violence, natural disasters and even our unfaithful systems, love will win. Jesus is the victory. And we're invited into that victory of grace each and every day. Listen, I'm standing at the door, the scripture says. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into you. I'll eat with you and you with me. 
May that be so for each one of us in these days and weeks to come. Let us pray. O oh Lord, Jesus did come to heal and to restore us all, all of humanity, so that together we might, not ex- we might experience not only our transformation, but we might experience the privilege of joining you in your redemptive work to heal this world. Lord, Lord help us to lean into Christ those arms that are always outstretched and waiting for us. Help us to grab hold, walk together with him. Help us to open our eyes so that we might join in your power, the power that is greater than ourselves. Help us to make room, to make room for you at the dinner tables of our life each and every day. Amen.